Good morning. Welcome again to In Town Church. Uh, if you are visiting with us, we've been going through an Advent series entitled The Places of Christmas. And if you're following along in the liturgy, you can see that dreams were very significant places in the Bible. They were places where people frittered away time, that they delusioned themselves with wishful thinking. But they were also places where people met God, that God communicated to them in very, very significant ways. And dreams simply in Scripture in that sense are just revelation. They're ways that God communicates. And so though we think it's strange and a little odd, it's the same as we sit before God and read His Word, as He communicates to us through preaching, through reading of His Word. In, in His Word, in biblical times, He communicated through the place of dreams. And so we're going to be a little bit non-traditional here as we look at places. We were looking at Nazareth, in Bethlehem in the last two weeks, but this morning we're going to look at the place of dreams, and specifically Joseph's dream. Follow along with me. This is Lesson 5 from Matthew 1. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, He had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife, but he did not not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, would you meet us now as we settle ourselves before you and before your word. Help us to believe that we are not here by accident, that just as you spoke to Joseph, you long to speak to us now. Enable us to hear what you have to say. Speak into our apathy, into our boredom, into our confusion, into our sadness. Help us, if we are skeptical, to see through the things that we find difficult about this passage, to truly see the person at its center, the person of Jesus. If we believe for a long time and this passage has become far too tepid in its familiarity, let it be made new now for us. Move towards us, move towards us as individuals and towards us as a church in your renewing and restorative love. We pray in Jesus' name alone. Amen. Dream sequences in TV are... uh, plot device, a storytelling device, that you can say things that you want to about the character, say things about the way that the story is moving without diverting from the plot. And you see this a lot in TV. In fact, in the 80s, it was used quite a bit. One whole season of of Dallas was wiped out by a dream. It was all these crazy things happened, and at the end of the season, oh, it was all a dream. 
you kind of can tell this is happening when you see someone going to sleep and then the frosty edges happen around the TV. You say, oh, it's a dream. Or the wavy lines, the groovy lines as they go to sleep. And you know, okay, we're about to learn something about this character, about something that happened in the past, about something that's going to happen in the future that we don't know yet. These are dream sequences. They give us some important information. And if you were watching the Gospel of Matthew televised, you would see this happen five different times in the early chapters. You'd see the lines go kind of wavy and Joseph would fall asleep or the wise men would fall asleep and God would speak to them in a dream. And when they woke up, it wasn't that they had imagined something and they kind of shook their head, but they said, God has spoken. God has entered into my life. Something has just happened to me and I have to respond Last week, we looked at the birth of Jesus through Mary's eyes in the Gospel of Luke. We saw a frightened, very young girl respond to the angel of the Lord. We saw her follow him, even though the instructions that she was receiving were quite quite unsettling. And this week, we're looking at the birth narrative through the eyes of her husband, Joseph, and how he responds to the announcement of Jesus' birth in a dream. Now, Joseph, just like you and I, has dreams for his life, his future. He's found a wife-to-be. Life is unfolding for him. He's embarking on his adult life with a companion. But then this dream throws everything into disarray. He sees a vision that will disrupt and disorient everything that he thought about his future. Everything that he was certain about now is uncertain. Now, there's a lot of supernatural things in this passage. The dream itself is supernatural. God, through an angel, is speaking to Joseph in a dream, in a way that he understands is from God. It's not just an illusion or his imagination. And there's also the virgin birth. And so we're tempted, maybe, as modern people to say, well, I can't believe this story because of all the supernatural thing, or to try and shuck it down to just the bare essentials, the insights that are being conveyed. After all, these are pre-scientific people. They have a very primitive idea, understanding of human biology and so forth. Maybe that's true, but they certainly knew how babies are made. And Joseph was certainly not confused. He knew what it meant that Mary was with child. It meant that she had been with another man. What else would it mean? And think with me for a moment. If Matthew is simply telling us about a guru, a teacher, a spiritual leader who has insights on God. Why choose to decorate the story with all of these supernatural elements? Just give us the method. Just give us the technique. Just tell us the insights, Matthew. No, no, no. Because what is so important about this story is the supernatural. It is God entering into Joseph's story, into Mary's story, into our story in very supernatural ways. In fact, according to Matthew, according to the Bible, the supernatural is the most central thing about reality. It's the most real thing there is. It's what's behind what we see and touch and feel. The point of the Gospels is not simply to narrate the story. It's not simply to give us Jesus' bio, but it's to invite us into that world where the supernatural is very real. The Christian church has held tenaciously to the historicity of this account and to the virgin birth itself. 
claiming that Jesus is both divine and human without confusing or intermingling those properties, that one, at the same time, he is human and divine. It's important theologically speaking because Jesus is God himself paying the eternal penalty for sin. And yet as a human, he is your and my adequate representative. He can pay your debt and my debt as a human and as God himself it counts eternally. It is wiped away eternally. It is very important, theologically speaking. It's not just a primitive person trying to figure out, how did this little young, young girl become pregnant? No, she was a virgin who gave birth, the son of the Holy Spirit. But it's also very important to us existentially. It's important for us as readers, as we, as we seek to go about life in this world where the supernatural is very real and very central to all of our experiences. It's a very unusual way for God to communicate, but we need to get into Joseph, Joseph's head to understand what exactly God is demanding of him. Why did he convey this message in this way? It's inviting Joseph into a new life, a whole new story, a whole new way of seeing reality. And we need to understand Joseph's perspective, just as we did last week, understand the ramifications of what was happening in Mary's life. We need to understand the ramifications, the context of Joseph receiving this announcement, because it's very much God inviting him to participate in a new story. And it's very much the very same thing as he is asking you and I to do this morning, not speaking to you through a dream, but inviting you into a new story of a whole new way of living. Now let's look at the situation, the ramifications, what's going on in Joseph's life at this point as he hears this announcement, as he dreams this dream. Well, he becomes aware that his fiancée is pregnant. And as is appropriate to custom and law, he decides to divorce her. He wants to do it quietly so that he can save her the public shame and ridicule and to try and minimize the shame on his family. But then, then an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. What is God asking of Joseph here? What is he inviting Joseph to do? Well, laws, as you saw in the passage, not only permitted divorce in this circumstance, although they weren't officially married, they were betrothed, which could only be broken by divorce or death. But in the case of adultery, it was not only permitted, but in fact advocated. It was required that the man would divorce the woman. Failing to do so would bring shame upon his family because adultery was the highest offense in this community, the theft of the most important thing. When Mary comes back to her friends and family and tells them, I am pregnant with the Son of God, they have every reason to not believe her. Why would they believe this young girl? Now imagine in Joseph's shoes, she comes and tells him that I'm pregnant, but I haven't been with another man. This is the Holy Spirit's son. He has every reason to not believe her. This is a betrayal of a very important sort. But he's been told in a dream to do 
exactly the opposite of what his instincts would require, exactly the opposite of what law and custom would require, exactly the opposite of what would protect his family and protect himself from ridicule. It's a very, very costly dream that Joseph has. And Christmas, if we really understand it, Advent, if we really get what's going on, is a very, very costly holiday. In our culture, pursuing your dreams is seen as your ultimate vocation. And many a movie, many a film, many a book is written about the hero finally understanding that what's wrong in their life is that they haven't been following their dreams. They haven't been following their heart. That's the way that the whole story revolves and, and unfolds, is that that realization then sets them towards happiness. It's part of the American myth, the American dream that future is yours to make, that life should be better and richer and fuller for anyone who's willing to work hard for it. And so us, sitting in that context, we're probably very sympathetic to Joseph here, to his situation. The dream costs him his dreams and his future. Following God will cost him the right to value, to hold on to his reputation, his status in the community. It will cost him all of his personal ambitions. It will cost him the dreams of the future that he has had in his mind about what is about to, unha- about to unfold, what is about to happen in his life, being married to Mary. He is asked, asked to give over control of all of these things to God. There are so many reasons that we choose not to believe this story. Maybe it's the supernatural that we get hung up on. It's the virgin birth. It's the dreams that someone would hear revelation from God in a dream. Well, I can't accept that sort of thing. If that's what's in the Bible, I'm going to reject it. But when I talk with people, when I converse with my own doubts, what is really at stake is not so much the intellectual. It's not so much that the Bible has these strange things in it, and therefore I choose not to believe it. The real point of departure isn't intellectual. It's that we don't want to cede authority to God, to someone else. We don't want to give up control of our lives, control of our dreams. We don't want to give up our dreams for the future and let God intervene in some crazy way like this. That's our problem. That's why we choose don't, don't, to not believe most of the time is that we don't want to cede control to someone else, certainly not someone that's unseen. What are your dreams about the future? What do you have your heart set on so much that nothing can interfere with your quest? What are your non-negotiables about the future? What things do you dream of possessing, whether it's real, physical things, or achievements, relationships, that you're going to have them whatever the cost? No matter what it costs you, what it costs your family, what it costs your friends, you're going to have them. This is your dream. This is your quest. It's a non-negotiable. What are those things for you? Much more than our intellectual doubts about the historicity of this account, how we answer those questions will much more determine if we're really ready for the cost of Christmas. You see, we can't say yes to Jesus. We can't say yes to the baby being born in a manger and born into our lives and still hold on tenaciously to those things. If they're non-negotiables, then it pushes Jesus out of our lives. Jesus can't be born into our lives until we're ready, in fact, to cede control. 
just as G- Joseph had to give up control of his future to say, yes, I'm willing to forego my dreams, my ambitions, my future, the way I imagine it in order to follow what is true, what is good, what is right, what God is telling me. You and I have to do the same thing if we understand what Christmas really is, if we understand what the incarnation, the birth of Jesus, the Son of God into the world, if you grasp that, if you want it into your life, if you want the baby to be born into your story, you have to see control. In Joseph's day, as Brooke mentioned, King Herod ruled by fear. He'd be willing to kill every baby in order to find the one, to make sure the one who was born king of Israel, who was born king of the Jews. You see, King Herod wasn't Jew, wasn't a Jew. He wasn't born king. He was Edomian. He was looking for the one who was born king of the Jews. This one was a true threat to his power, his rule by fear. He would be willing to kill every baby to find the one who was born king of the Jews. You see, Herod was feared, and thus he was granted power. So long as he was feared, he was in control. When we say, I want to have my dreams or else, I will have my ambitions or else, I will secure what I want at all cost, our fears of not having these things controls us. We're ceding control. It's just that it's not to God. We're giving ourselves over to a very demanding taskmaster instead of a loving father. You see, in either sense, we see control to God. We say, I want the baby born into my life. I understand the cost of Christmas, and I'm willing to see control to God himself. That's one option. The other option is not neutrality. The other option is that we see control to something else, to some other master. And in this case, it's normally our dreams. We will have them at all cost. Our ambitions then control us. Our hopes for the future manipulate us, and it causes us to manipulate other people as well. Following God for Joseph, following God's dreams, means that he had to cede control. But you know what? It also means that we can stop trusting our anxiety. We can stop letting our fears and worry rule us. We can stop letting the sad experiences of our lives, the setbacks that we experience, totally define us. You see, God does demand that we see control, that we cede authority to him, but he also says, let me free you from your anxiety, your worry, your fear, all of the bad marks on your record. Let me do away with them once and for all. These things still have a voice, but we can turn down the volume. We can let it just be a whisper. We can finally say no to our anxiety's desire to control us and rule us. So long as we fear other people's opinions, so long as we fear being without something, without money, so long as we fear not having the relationship that we really want, these things control us. What if God instead is control is in control in your life. Well, the Bible tells us stories like this one, like Joseph's dream, that he had to give up everything, that he had to cede control. And yet look at what happened in his life. It tells us earlier about another dreamer, another dreamer named Joseph. He had 11 jealous brothers who wanted to be done with him and his dreams. 
And they say, come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. So he sold his property to traveling merchants, but he ends up a powerful man in Egypt, the second in command. And when there is a famine in Israel, he's able to rescue his family, these 11 jealous brothers and his, his father. His brothers come and ask for mercy. And what does Joseph say? What you meant for evil, God meant for good. He was under no impression that he was in control of his life, but he knew that what they meant for evil, God was going to redeem for good. When you see control of your life to God, I can't guarantee that you're going to be second in command. I can't guarantee that you're going to be rich and powerful. But I can tell you that when those evil things come, when evil itself enters into your life, that God is able to redeem it, that God is able to transform it into something that is good for his kingdom and good for you as a person. It doesn't change that it hurts. It doesn't change that there is evil in the world. But it does change that the fact that God is actively redeeming those things. In our passage, Joseph gives up his dream to live God's dream. It's very demanding, yet also very liberating. Just as the angel told Mary, Mary, don't be afraid. The angel tells Joseph the very same thing. It's very scary to cede control over to God, to anyone. But God says, don't be afraid, Joseph, because I am Emmanuel, God with you. It's very scary to give over authority to God, to give up control of your life. But he says, do not be afraid because I am Emmanuel, God with you. I will be with you in your present and in your future. Now, Christmas is a season that's decorated with dreams and Christmas cards are are full of them. Peace on earth and goodwill towards men. They're colored with dreams about time with our family, opening presents under the Christmas tree, singing songs and carols about what it might be like to the morning of Christmas. It's decorated with dreams. But I don't know about you, but for me, the actual experience never quite lives up to the anticipation that I put on it. I have all of these wonderful uh, experiences in my childhood, all these wonderful times that I remember Christmas and how great it was. And I build that up in my mind. I look forward to it. And I love Christmas. I do. I enjoy it. But it's never quite what I imagine. We have almost this mystical kind of transcendent value that we place on the experience of Christmas, that we want something so badly. We want what Christmas represents. We want the dream of Christmas, not just the activities of Christmas The larger dreams that Christmas supposedly points to, these things on cards, peace on earth, goodwill towards men, never seems to come, does it? I've heard it said that Christmas is a time when you get homesick, even when you're at home. C.S. Lewis used this idea of homesick in one of his letters to a friend, helping someone with doubt, of feeling out of sequence in the world. He said that this homesickness is actually a sign that God is at work, that God has been incarnate in your world. 
And paraphrasing him, he says, fish do not feel out of place in water. They never feel wet. They're made for water. But if this world is all that, it, all that there is, why do we feel out of place? Why do we feel out of place in nature? Why do we feel a homesickness towards the things that ought to be, a homesickness for peace on earth and goodwill towards men? If time and space is all you have, if the material world is all there is, then our experience of the strong eating the weak, the survival of the fittest, is the way things ought to be. Why do you feel out of place in that world then? Fish don't feel wet in the water. But we in this world are longing for a place of justice and peace and love. Even though the world is only a world of fighting for existence, the strong eating the weak, if we live in a totally materialistic world. Why do we feel that homesickness? Why do we long for things that are so contrary to nature? It's because we're not at home here. It's because we feel wet here. Because our ultimate origin, our ultimate destination is not here. God's world is not fully incarnate here. The world as it should be was lost and separated from the full flourishing of God and His love and His presence and His peace. Back to Genesis very briefly as we end. The Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, they fall into sin. And what does God do? He pushes them out of that perfect existence, out of the garden of beauty where peace does reign. And that's one way to tell the story. But another way to say it that's just as true is that man and woman despoiled the garden, that they kicked God out of this beautiful existence, that they said, I will live the way I want. Thank you very much. But the incarnation, the baby in the manger, the dream of Joseph says that God has not given up on us. Though we have despoiled his creation, though, he, though we have lived against his will, he pursues you and I incessantly. That he sends his son born in a stall to redeem your life, my life, to redeem all of the world. Joseph the dream of Joseph says God has not given up on us. He's not jettisoned, jettisoned his ideal of the way things ought to be. He too has dreams of peace on earth and goodwill towards men. But it's a dream that will finally come true. The dream of Christianity is one that will cost you everything, and yet you give up nothing of ultimate value. Wrestle with your dreams. Wrestle with your thoughts of the future. Wrestle with your ambitions. If you were to have all of them, would you be happy? If you were to be granted everything in your personal ambition, would it be enough? Or would you still be longing for another fuller reality? Would you still, still feel wet? What if God himself were to enter into your world and lay claim to your dreams, but he wasn't saying, I'm in control and you'll never be happy. But instead, he was saying, you dream because you're homesick. You dream because you long for a different place, another reality, a truer, fuller experience of all of what is good. Let me give that to you. Let me grant you peace on earth. Friends, that's the story of this dream. That's the story of Christmas that God comes in our world, in our story, in the form of a baby, 
and says, I am bringing peace on earth. I am putting a down payment on your future, on the ideal that I will eventually bring in in full flourishing. But until then, look to this manger. Look to this baby. Look to Jesus. He is your only hope. He is the hope of a future reality where the full flourishing of peace on earth is guaranteed. Friends, come into that dream. Come into that story. Take hold of Jesus and all his promises during this Christmas season. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would wrestle us from those dreams that are leading us away from you, that are leading us to not love our neighbor, to not give of ourselves uh, to your mission, to your people. Father, wrestle us away from those things that are clouding our judgment, clouding our vision of who you are. Would you pry them from our hands? Lord, would you give us hearts that are more content with what you want for us, with what you grant for us? Father, I pray that we would be content, that we would be joyful, that we would rejoice this season over a God who would pay the ultimate penalty, that would pay for all of our sins, that would make everything right, that we could lay our heads down at night knowing that we are at peace with you. Lord, let that be our reality. Let that be our story. Let that be our worship this Christmas season. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.